Sudan is an African country located in the northeastern part of the continent, just south of Egypt and north of Ethiopia and South Sudan, with Eritrea and the Red Sea to the east and just across the Red Sea, for slightly larger geographic context, is Saudi Arabia. Part of its northwestern border touches Libya, Chad is to the west, and the Central African Republic is just barely touching its southwestern border. Sudan has a population of not quite 45 million people, approximately 75% of whom are Sudanese Arabs, with the rest of the population consisting of folks from either indigenous groups scattered throughout the region or ethnic groups more common to nearby nations like Egypt. It's the third largest country in Africa by geographic area, and it was the largest in Africa until 2011, when what is today South Sudan seceded, handing over the title of geographically largest African nation to Algeria as a consequence. The term Sudan originally had a larger regional connotation, referring to a portion of Africa composed of what we might today loosely call Western and Central Africa. The term is derived from Arabic and means something like land of the black people and was used to delineate a portion of the continent primarily inhabited by people with darker skin than those living in the more northeastern portions of the continent who had comparably lighter skin and lived in influential kingdoms from which such monikers were more likely to gain traction and be spread widely. One of those kingdoms was called the Kingdom of Kush, and it straddled the Nile River and was politically aligned with the early kingdoms of Egypt, which makes sense, as from what we're able to tell about the people living in these areas during prehistoric times, they shared a lot of common concerns and norms and culture and blood. Over the course of these two kingdoms' development, Egypt became more dominant, but the two groups were tied to each other by trade along the Nile. Eventually, during their Middle Kingdom era, ranging from about 2100 to 1720 BC, Egypt began to build military fortifications further upriver, which is headed south, into Kush territory. But then, a group called the Hyksos took over Egypt and they removed these fortifications and pulled inward, culturally and militarily, until a few hundred years later, when the Egyptian New Kingdom emerged, defined in large part by a resurgent outward push to gain influence and dominance over other regional powers. And during that push, a newer, stronger Kushite kingdom that filled the power vacuum when Egypt pulled back was basically incorporated into the Egyptian government and ruled by a viceroy answering to the Egyptian pharaoh, who ensured tributes of gold and people were sent back to Egypt on a regular basis. This Egyptian rule and dominance, culturally and linguistically and economically and militarily, remained over the region for hundreds of years. But as that central government's influence 
waned primarily due to foreign influence and military conquest from outsiders, the Kushite leaders began to see themselves as something akin to the pharaoh, as being religious and governmental power loci, and that led to a small resurgence in Kushite identity, which percolated and grew leading up to the 11th century BC, at which point the Egyptian government's power and influence over Kush had disappeared almost entirely and the resurgent kingdom of Kush pulled inward, more or less disappearing from historical documentation because the writing-happy Egyptians were no longer there to tell us what happened, only to reappear in the historical record about 300 years later in the 8th century BC, when a series of particularly aggressive Kushite leaders started pushing northward into Egypt, which portended the 750 BC conquest of much of Egypt by a Kushite king who then ruled Thebes, the capital of the region, for about ten years, paving the way for his successor, who then went on to conquer the rest of Egypt. And this led to the 25th dynasty of Egypt, during which the kingdom was ruled by a line of kings who held sway over both Egypt and Kush for about a century though a significant portion of that century was marked by turmoil and conflict, as some of these leaders were keen to claim some of Assyria's sphere of influence over in what we would today call the Middle East, up in contemporary Iraq and Iran and Syria. So the 25th Egyptian dynasty was at near-constant war with that very powerful eastern kingdom, making expansion throughout Africa less of an option. Assyria eventually conquered Egypt in 674 BC, kicking out the Kushites and putting native Egyptians back in power, though as vassals of the Assyrian government. The Kushites returned and won back their Egyptian throne a few times, but in all cases were then defeated once more by the Assyrians, and were eventually defeated so badly that Egypt as a kingdom wasn't really able to recover, and the routed Kushites fled and then remained further south, setting up their own smaller kingdom based around a city-state called Meroe. This city-state was heavily influenced by traditional pharaonic Egyptian culture, and they built monuments like pyramids and well-thought-out irrigation systems. Over the course of the few hundred years, they remained dominant in their relatively small territory. They also evolved Egyptian hieroglyphs into their own alphabet and writing system, which incorporated existing Nubian languages. Nubia, consisting of a group of indigenous people who lived in this region throughout essentially the entire history I just described, often being pulled into those larger conflicts, but mostly keeping to themselves a little further south and only living in larger cities when the Kushites or Egyptians expanded into their region. After the Romans moved into the area, taking Egypt and much of the rest of the northern part of the continent, they periodically raided and razed Marawi, but didn't consider claiming the area more permanently to be worth their time. It was too sparsely populated and resource-poor to be worth colonizing from their point of view. 
This region, often bearing the label of Nubia during this period, because borders and spheres of influence were so rapidly shifting, was conquered and claimed and destroyed and rebuilt several times between 350 and 1500 AD. Though notably, the Nubians, as part of a then-regionally dominant kingdom called Makuria, were one of the few groups that managed to fend off incursions by Muslims during the wave of Islamic expansion through the area from 640 to 652 AD, which is pretty impressive considering how many other cultures the Caliphate and its allies were able to just plow right through in a relatively short period of time, including Egypt, just to their north. The Makuria kingdom began to slip into decline in the 12th century, though, and in 1365, a civil war caused the ruling class to flee. The Arabs took part of their former territory, the Bedouins and other nomadic tribes took the rest, and the area was essentially broken into pieces, and though portions of this region were caught up in other conquests and intrigues over the course of the next few hundred years, it wasn't central to any of these happenings until the Funj Sultanate set up shop after having booted a few smaller groups, including a short-lived Christian kingdom, and then ruled a chunk of this area until their peak in the 17th century followed by a series of coups in the 18th century, each of which brought kingdom-wide name changes before being usurped by a series of new coups, which resulted in new sultanates until eventually Egypt, having undergone a period of rapid modernization and achieving not quite but almost independence from their Ottoman overlords during the 19th century, conquered basically everybody down in the northern Sudan region and incorporated them into their extended territory. That claim on the region lasted until 1885 when a religious leader named Muhammad Ahmad unified Sudanese tribes and led a war against the Egypt-aligned government in the northern Sudanese city of Khartoum. This leader's successor led this same group to victories in neighboring Ethiopia, parts of which they conquered and incorporated into their territory, and they then headed north into Egypt, where they were defeated by British military forces. The British agreed to a joint rule with the Egyptian government over Sudan in 1899, though in practice, much of the Sudanese government was set up and run by the British. From then until the end of World War II, a period in which European colonizers claimed broad swaths of Africa and carved it up into pseudo-nations optimized for raw material extraction, chunks of Sudan were claimed by the Belgians, the French, and the English, with ostensible input by the Egyptians. And this led to a situation in which the northern part of the country was modernized to some degree by the British, who were trying to build up local infrastructure and the local economy, while in the south, a region with vastly different ecological layout and substantially different cultural forces influencing its norms, less building and international incorporation was taking place. In 1943, the British had begun preparing northern Sudan for self-governance, 
But in 1946, they changed their plans and decided to make the southern part of Sudan part of the same country, rather than treating it as a separate entity, a unification they had promised not to implement. So when they changed their mind, it pissed off the southern Sudanese because, again, this was a very different place, even in terms of the language spoken, as most northerners spoke Arabic and most southerners spoke English. And this meant that they would be ruled by a North Sudanese government moving forward. And Southerners would have little, if any, power within that new government structure because of how it was built. Of the 800 governmental positions that were being handed over to locals, only four would be given to Southerners. Ten years later, in 1953, the transition to self-government formally began. The first parliament was inaugurated in 1954, and in 1955, the first southern Sudanese military revolt began. And though it was put down pretty quickly, it kicked off a long-term period of guerrilla warfare in the region and is now generally thought of as the beginning of what became known as the First Sudanese Civil War, which lasted from 1955 until 1972 and led to the deaths of about half a million people as those guerrilla warriors created a formal insurgency, which in turn led to the South Sudan Liberation Movement which wanted to create a separate state. The second Sudanese civil war began in 1983, following the announcement that Sharia law would be enforced even in non-Muslim parts of the country in the South. But it's generally thought that this was mostly just a continuation of that first civil war. And the same resentments remained simmering, if not generally sparking violence, throughout the relatively peaceful decade between the civil wars. That said, this one lasted about 22 years, from 1983 until 2005, led to the deaths of about 2 million people because of the violence itself, but also famine and disease that resulted from that violence, led to the displacement of something like 4 million Southerners, and it eventually, six years after it ended with a peace treaty, led to a vote on independence for the South which in turn led to the breakup of the country and the establishment of South Sudan as an independent nation in 2011. What I'd like to talk about today is what's happened in Sudan since that breakup, and in particular, a recent turn of events that may determine the fate of the country in very significant ways. listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The piece I'd like to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Sudan's Military Seizes Power, Casting Democratic Transition into Chaos. In April of 2019, the Sudanese army overthrew then-President Omar al-Bashir, who himself originally came to power in 1989 when he, then a brigadier general, led a military coup against the democratically elected government, ousting the prime minister and his people and installing himself and primarily military loyalists in their place. Al-Bashir was elected three times, 
after elections were reinstated post-coup, though those elections have been called into question, and most outside experts who have taken a look at how they were held say that they were probably fraudulent. He oversaw the end of the Second Sudanese Civil War, negotiating the referendum that led to South Sudan's eventual secession from the North. He also oversaw a collection of military and pseudo-military efforts against various militia and rebel groups, including the Janjaweed on the border with neighboring Chad, and the Justice and Equality Movement and Sudanese Liberation Army, operating primarily in the country's western Darfur region. In mid-2009, al-Bashir became the first ever sitting head of state to be indicted by the International Criminal Court for allegedly calling for and instigating a genocide in Darfur, apparently ordering a strategy predicated on mass killings, mass rapes, and the pillaging of civilian settlements in the area. Al-Bashir stayed in power despite arrest warrants issued by the ICC, but protests against his rule, which was predicated on sustained civil disobedience that went on for about eight months, was triggered by the tripling of the cost of bread in the country, which is fairly fundamental to the local diet. Combined with the violent government treatment of protesters eventually resulted in the aforementioned coup that ousted him from power. In the latter half of 2019, power shifted from the Transitional Military Council, which was set up by the military after al-Bashir was booted, to another transitional mixed military and civilian government, where power was divided up between some civilian and some military officials. This government, called the Sovereignty Council, was meant to run things for 39 months a period that would serve as a transition between the previous al-Bashir government setup, which was democratic on its face, but probably not really, and a future, maybe actually democratic government that would take control in November of 2022. On October 25, 2021, however, the general in charge of the country's military dissolved the Sovereignty Council, after detaining the civilian prime minister and his wife and moving them to an undisclosed location. The prime minister was directed by the military leadership to release a statement saying that he supported their takeover, but instead he released a statement calling on pro-democracy Sudanese people to take to the streets in peaceful protest, which, as you might imagine, did not go over well with the military leadership and the Prime Minister has not been seen since. Though as of the day I'm recording this, the US, Norway, France, Germany, and the United Nations have all condemned his kidnapping and have demanded that the military release him and his wife without conditions. This coup wasn't an entirely surprising turn of events for anyone watching what has been happening in Sudan these past few months. There have been conflicts and minor power struggles between the civilian and military leadership components of this Sudanese transitional government since it was established in response to demands made by protesters after that 2019 coup. And things on the ground have gotten quite difficult on many levels for the everyday citizen, as pandemic-related constraints and threats have severely hurt the economy. But larger economic, infrastructural, and governmental forces have also conspired to crush Sudan's financial well-being. 
their fuel prices have been skyrocketing in the wake of the removal of fuel subsidies, which was part of a larger set of economic reforms intended to pave the way for what was hoped to be a better setup when that future democratic government came into power in 2022. But the country has also been struggling with massive levels of inflation exceeding 360% as of April 2021. A shortage of foreign currency, which has made trading with other countries tricky, and the adoption of austerity measures, as demanded by the International Monetary Fund, which was, in part, what triggered that fuel price increase, but has also led to the diminishment or disappearance of social safety nets that survived the 2019 coup and the year or so following it. So tensions were already high, and protests were becoming more and more common. Some protests even overtly supported a coup by the military portion of the government. The thinking seeming to be that this transition to democracy was the cause of all these economic woes. So maybe they should just go back to something more authoritarian, if that would help bring back some of the comparable wealth at least some portions of the population enjoyed under their previous pseudo-dictator. There is a chance that some of those protests were riled up or even orchestrated by the Sudanese military to prime the pumps for the coup they were planning, or to test the waters to see how much support they would get for the idea. The writing was so much on the wall, in fact, that the U.S. government sent a top regional envoy to meet with leaders in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum, the preceding weekend to try to convince military leaders not to seize power. That effort clearly didn't work, but it shows just how much concern there was in the air, bubbling up about this potentiality and how it might derail democracy-focused efforts leading up to that intended end of 2022 new government establishment date. Notably, As part of that transitionary process, the general in charge of the Sudanese military, which has held the dominant seat in the Sovereignty Council up till this point, was scheduled to cede that seat to a civilian leader in just a few weeks' time. And that civilian leader would then hold that primary seat until full implementation of that eventual new government. And that would have put Sudan under full civilian control for the first time since 1989 when al-Bashir launched his military coup. So that milestone was prevented by yet another military coup. This new post-coup military government has said they intend to follow through with plans for a democratic government in the future, pushing the date back a bit to July of 2023, but they've said this is still part of their plan to make that happen. It's been reported that few civilian leaders believe this promise, though, and most seem to think that the military government will either keep moving the goalposts, pushing the date back and back and back, or they'll do what al-Bashir did and introduce something that seems to be democracy, but which is rigged so that a military leader will always stay in control. Part of why this is such a big story, worthy of breaking headline announcements from even normally quite staid news networks, is that Sudan seemed to be moving in the right direction, according to the standards of the democracy with capitalism-based global order. 
a bunch of money has been earmarked by many wealthy governments around the world to help Sudan with their transition to democracy. And Sudan was recently taken off the United States State Sponsors of Terrorism list, which is a pretty big deal in terms of their ability to start playing economic ball with the rest of the world, making trade deals and getting credit and things like that. Most or all of that money, it's safe to say, has now been held up. And though it's unclear as to what will happen to the trade deals recently made with the now overthrown government, there's a good chance those will be held up or canceled as well, all of which will likely make the country's existing issues related to inflation and fuel and bread prices and the spiral of other hardships they're already enduring all the more potent and damaging, especially for the everyday Sudanese person who's just trying to eat and keep a roof over their head, but who is already having trouble doing so and will likely have even more trouble in the foreseeable future because of this swirl of new events. Now, there's a chance that this prediction might be wrong, and having a more authoritarian hand on the wheel with the discipline of a military command structure behind it could actually be what the country needs right now, embroiled as they are in multiple simultaneous crises. More likely is that the area will be cast into further turmoil, and we'll see something similar to what we're seeing in Myanmar following their military coup earlier this year, which has resulted in an ongoing crisis and slow-burning conflict between the military junta that's running things and everyday people who are engaged in various types of civil disobedience pretty much constantly, alongside a more militant portion of the population that's engaging in active guerrilla warfare against the military. There's also a small chance that the military will back down, realizing that they've taken full control of a sinking economy and thus they will shoulder the blame for whatever happens to that economy. And they may realize that lacking external support of the kind they were promised just recently, leading up to the coup, they don't really stand much chance of riding the ship by themselves, and they'll put into place a face-saving version of what existed before, allowing them to claim victory while also reverting more or less to that previous status quo in everything but name. This is a fast-moving collection of stories, so there's a chance more events of importance will happen in the near future, perhaps even before this episode goes live. In any event, it will almost certainly be a very tumultuous and painful period for the people who live in this area, and that, unfortunately, will likely remain the case for the foreseeable future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Forget the Alamo, the true story of the myth that made Texas by Brian Burrow, Chris Tomlinson, and Jason Stanford. This was a very interesting and somewhat eye-opening book to me, as I previously only had the vaguest sense of what the Alamo was about, though I understood its cultural significance to a lot of people who live in the southern part of the United States, and Texas in particular. 
but I understood in a general sense the meaning that it held for people, even if I didn't understand the specifics historically behind it. And what this book does a great job of is both describing the historical context and the information we have about what actually happened and how that compares to the story we tell about it, but also the cultural significance of the Alamo and the battle and everything else surrounding it and how that cultural significance becomes in some ways more important than the historical event to the point where it's almost a faith or a dogma to some people and how those who benefit from a certain interpretation of events lock it in to the education system, to the way stories are told, to the way we culturally remember events of this kind, even if that doesn't really line up with what actually happened. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Forget the Alamo by Brian Burrow, Chris Tomlinson, and Jason Stanford. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find a portfolio of other projects you might enjoy at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.